Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, January 12th. We begin with a look at the impact the COVID-19 Omicron variant is having across the country and right here at home. From the change in the isolation period for those infected to the accuracy of at-home rapid tests. We get the latest from vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Next, we look at the effect alcohol can have on our health, specifically when it comes to a higher risk of cancer. We speak with a doctor of oncology who says warning labels should be standard on alcoholic beverages to inform us, we consumers, about the risks. Then it's our monthly conversation with Dr. Axel Morenschlager, Director of Conservation and Science at the Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo. This time out, Dr. Morenschlager tells us the success story of the tequila fish, which was once deemed extinct from its natural habitat. And finally, we are all spending a lot more time inside during this pandemic. And if you're looking to make some home improvements, well, we've got you covered. We get some tips and tricks to spruce up your space from blogger and DIY expert Christina Dennis, who will also be a presenter at this weekend's Calgary Renovation show taking place at the BMO Centre. Public health recommendations are constantly changing and keeping up with the latest restrictions and protocols can certainly be confusing. So joining us this morning to try and help understand the current COVID situation is Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, who is a family doctor, vaccine researcher and founder of Prime Health Research. Good morning to you, Dr. Gorfinkel. Thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me, Sue. It's a pleasure. Appreciate your time. Let's talk about uh, kids are back in the classroom here in Alberta. So, and I really right across the country, as we see, I know in Ontario, they'll go back next week. But how concerned should parents be about the spread of Omicron in the schools? I, I think it's just a matter of time before most children are going to have the disease, quite frankly. And the reason for that is this. You know, although we're doing fantastically well with over 12-year-olds, some 9 out of 10 in Alberta have now been vaccinated. When you look at 5 to 11-year-olds, it's less than half. It's actually pretty abysmal. And when you look at how many have actually had two doses, we're talking 1 in 50 Canada-wide. Wow. So the, so it's, it's very few in that age group who've been vaccinated. So what does that translate into when kids congregate in schools in colder weather? I mean, they're going to get the disease. But the good news is this. One in 25,000 wind up in hospital. You know, so that's data from the United States, which happens to be actually some of the best data we have. So the chance of a child winding up in hospital is low. But there are big looming questions about the longer term. So what does it mean if they get the disease? How many are going to wind up with long COVID? We don't know that. You know, how many are going to have this, you know, multi-inflammatory system, systemic disease in children? Answer, we, we actually don't know that. So there's a lot of longer-term questions we don't know. The key is we don't want kids all checking into the hospital at once because even if a tiny percentage of children were to wind up in hospital at the same time, it could overwhelm our systems. Very interesting. Mm. Uh, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about the isolation period that has been adjusted in most jurisdictions, it seems to be the case, to five days uh, uh, being recommended. Is that effective in your opinion? It is. And I'll, I'll share with you. The, the problem is, is that if we were to isolate a large number of people all at once, question, mm. what would that do to our healthcare workers? I'm dealing with that in my office right now. We're actually... Every single worker in my office 
has a COVID-like illness. Do I even know it's COVID? Not for sure, but we're checked out. We're doing just virtual care for this entire week. You know, so it's interesting. It doesn't take a lot to take down a lot of essential services. So what that five days represents is probably the best compromise we can do between not taking too many people out of the workforce all at once and yet reducing the spread of the virus. Because most of the virus is going to be spread two days before a person gets symptoms, up to three days after. So they tacked on a couple of two days, but the amount of virus being shed at that time is actually pretty low. Okay, so as a physician, you feel like that's okay? It does make sense, that five-day isolation period? It's a balance between the harms and the benefits. Okay. Now, what if somebody's not vaccinated? You know, it's not five days. It's actually 10 days if somebody is unvaccinated. And the reason for that is because they are going to be shedding more virus. That's data based on previous variants. We don't actually know that for sure with Omicron. It's just too new. It's spreading too fast. And with the rate at which it's spreading now, we're worried our hospital beds can become overwhelmed. That's the key. We don't want everybody checking in at the same time. Fine, we're going to, you know, for that few who will get sick enough to go to hospital. And remember, for kids, I said, from U.S. data, it's one in 25,000. But it does take a lot to overwhelm. So that's the idea. We want to try to, I know this is old-fashioned to say, but flatten the curve in terms of the number of hospitalizations all at once. Dr. Garfinkel, I'm wondering if you can give us your idea of the roadmap that Omicron is on. We've heard uh, other experts and read, um, you know, reports across the globe that says this could be the move from pandemic to endemic just because it will be so widespread. What are your thoughts on Omicron, how long it'll be with us, et cetera? It, it's a plus and a minus, right? So when everybody gets the disease, and we can only thank our lucky stars that it turned out to be a mild disease. That's not a given. So we got to be thankful for that. You know, but the fact is, if that will diversify people's portfolio of immune responses. So great, we've got the vaccine under our belts, and now, in addition, we've got the booster, and then what do we have? We have Omicron itself. So all of this gives a more diverse pipe portfolio, and that's wonderful, right? But then what are the pitfalls of this? We don't know how strong that immunity will be. We don't know how long it will last, and we do know that there is a selection bias going on here, that as the world remains unvaccinated, more and more variants are coming down that pipe. You know, the low-income countries are simply not vaccinated, and what we're doing is we're on a treadmill of vaccines. We're just going to have to keep vaccinating and trying to keep up as the the low-income countries keep pumping out more and more variants of concern. And those variants are only getting better at escaping the immunity from our vaccines. You know, that was going to be my next question then. So so if you've had Omicron, you certainly can, you think, potentially catch whatever the next variant might be. You'll be able to likely get COVID over and over. You're just better at fighting it if you're vaccinated. Is that right? each, Each of these things adds to the portfolio of immune responses. In other words, you're diversified. You can, you, can, you can answer this kind and this kind, but in terms of will it address future variants, the, this is one of the defining features of the variant. It's better at escaping our vaccines. That's one of the defining features of it. And it's kind of like antibiotics. You know how we talk about antibiotic resistance? This is vaccine resistance. Mm. 
it's actually very analogous to that. You know, so that's the problem that, you know, if we keep just vaccinating, in order to truly understand herd immunity, we have to think about it, not as an individual country, but as a world concept. And I know that sounds ideal. And what is one individual going to do about that right now? The truth of the matter is, this pandemic will only end when the world is vaccinated enough. Very interesting. Uh, I'm wondering, Dr. Gorfinkel, we have to take a quick break for traffic. Can you keep with us for two more minutes? Of course. Oh, good stuff. More coming your way uh, from Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family doctor, vaccine researcher, and founder of Prime Health Research. More with Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a family doctor, vaccine researcher, and founder of Prime Health Research. Thank you for spending some more time with us, Dr. Gorfinkel. Thanks for having me, Andy. Uh, your your uh, question here, we've got several different types of questions surrounding the home rapid tests that uh, so many of us have in, in Alberta. They're actually hard to find right now. Uh, about when we should take these tests, because we're hearing reports of some people saying, hey, I, I didn't feel uh, all that bad. Then I took a test. It said I was negative, And the next day I, I felt really crappy or I felt bad and I was 99% sure I had covid took the test and it came out negative. What are your thoughts on the efficacy and and when is the best time to take one of these tests to try to get the most true results? The best time to take it is when a person actually has symptoms. The problem is, number one, we're not sure just how effective these tests are when it comes to picking up Omicron. And I think that's important to understand. These tests were originally designed for completely different variants. That's first. Secondly, PCR, I like to think of as photocopier. So when you get a PCR test, it magnifies what could be even a tiny signal so you can see it better. Now, rapid tests don't do that. Rapid tests can only detect the amount of virus that's actually there. So if you're taking it from the bottom of the nose and there's no symptoms, we know that it misses at least half of the cases that are there. You, you know, in other words, it's not reliable. You know, however, when a person has symptoms, the likelihood of shedding virus is much higher. So that's the best time to do it. And ideally, just before, like if you're going to a high risk event or something and you want to make sure you don't have it just before going, because we know that those tests can, in fact, rapidly change. It's a major problem with the testing, not only just getting it, but also relying on its results. That's one of the reasons why we didn't see them rolled out earlier and more aggressively, because there's questions around the accuracy. There's questions around people feeling overly confident when they see a negative result because you cannot rely on it with certainty. Dr. Gorfinkel, you talked about, you know, that you would be shedding the virus if you had it a couple of days before and then for about three days after. How long technically, though, might you test positive for? How long would your body be sort of still registering that virus for? How long a period? Yeah, that's not a one size fits all question. It's interesting. It depends on age. It depends on other diseases a person has. It depends on how strong their immune system is. So that's not a simple one-size-fits-all question. And also it depends on, you know, is there a correlation between symptoms? And we're not even certain about that. One-third of individuals have no symptoms whatsoever with Omicron. You know, so and these are the things that make it part of the factors that make it spread so rapidly. Yeah, it's got over 50 mutations. That we know that its spike protein is a way better key to get into the locks of our cells. Boy, can that thing invade cells rapidly. 
But luckily, it doesn't invade lung cells as rapidly, but it does invade the bronchus cells rapidly. And that's a problem for asthmatics because they're the people who wind up having inflammation in their airways and mucus plugging. So there's, it, it's an interesting mix here. It's not a one-size-fits-all question. Just a, one last quick question. If side effects when it comes to booster shots, somebody wants to know if they're getting their third shot, can they expect side effects? And a, a side question to that, should we request the same type of vaccine that we had for our previous two shots? Great question. My feeling is get the first shot that's available as a booster shot simply because the number of hospitalizations is expected to really go up. It's going to take about a week. At least, you know, the best data we have is that people after a booster shot mount an immune response after about a week. And what can they expect? Of course, the usual redness and soreness at the injection site, extremely common, mild headache, muscle aches, joint pains. This is after getting the vaccine. Moderna, Pfizer, the data seems to be a little stronger on Moderna vaccines. In terms of 10 weeks out, Moderna has a 75% vaccine efficacy versus Pfizer, which is 10 weeks from that, getting that booster shot. It's a little lower at some 45%. You know, this is one of the factors that's driving Israel to give fourth doses. Listen to that carefully. Here we go, the mm. vaccine treadmill, right? Yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Always appreciate having you on. Many thanks, Sue and Andy. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a great day. That is Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family doctor, vaccine researcher, and founder of Prime Health Research. You can find out more at primehealthtoronto.com. Many people have given up alcohol as part of a dry January, but is it worth putting the sauce down for good? And should alcohol have cancerous warning labels on the packaging? Joining us to help look at the dangers associated with alcohol consumption is Dr. Fawad Iqbal, radiation oncologist at the Durham Regional Cancer Center. Good morning to you, Dr. Iqbal. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, It's interesting to me uh, that, you know, Again, outside looking in, I enjoy beer. Uh, and It's news to me that alcohol can cause cancer. Am, am I alone here, or do you think that it's common knowledge that there's cancerous risks with consumption of alcohol? Well, I think that's the whole thing, is that most people actually don't know. And, you know, studies really back that up, depending where you look. Up to 9 in 10 people don't know that alcohol can cause cancer. So, Dr. Iqbal, is it the alcohol itself, so therefore it's whether it's a, a spirit or a wine or a beer? And, and how is it that it's the alcohol that's causing cancers? So there, there's lots of different mechanisms that have been studied, and it, it really doesn't matter which form. So, you know, red wine, people think, oh, red wine's good for my heart. Like, that's not true. Oh, but it, it is it. the alcohol The alcohol itself. Uh, there's lots of mechanisms where, you know, it's going through your body and being digested. And one of the things that it's kind of an in-between form as it's being digested through you, uh, it directly damages the DNA in your body. Uh, and another one for women particularly, it actually messes up your hormone system and can mess up your estrogen levels, uh, and then that can increase your risk of breast cancer. So there, there's more mechanisms than that, but those are the top two. Hmm. Yeah, those are the mechanisms that you talk about, Dr. Iqbal. I'm wondering, though, does it increase the risk of all cancers, or is it specific to certain types of cancer? Yeah, it is certain types of cancer, and I, I think the numbers would, would by and large say it's breast cancer for women. And if you think about kind of the digestive pathway of how it actually works its way through your body, 
so mouth or throat or liver, uh, things like that. Um, so it's not every kind of cancer, but it's certainly enough of the common cancers out there, like breast cancer and colorectal cancer, where you know it actually makes a big difference in terms of kind of life as an oncologist for, for me in my day-to-day. And as an oncologist, then, we know studies show it that through the pandemic, people have been drinking more, so higher alcohol consumption. Are you then anticipating an increase in cancer diagnoses coming up in the next year and beyond? Well, so so not specifically related to cancer, but we're definitely anticipating more cancers coming through related to kind of underdiagnosis during during COVID. But the the alcohol side is more like decades down the road, right? Like the things that you do when you're 20, they start to affect you when you're 40 or 50 or 60, right? But, you know, for, for us in the like our cancer center, the people we've seen during COVID, they've had really, really bad cancers. That's how they got to attention during the during the pandemic. But afterwards, there's going to be a very large wave of kind of for lack of a better term, the usual cancers that we pick up. And most of them will, will probably be worse than they probably should have been. Dr. Iqbal, you know, when we hear about smokers, they say that if you quit smoking, I think it's kind of compounded how many years it takes, but you can kind of reverse the effects, uh, you know, in your lungs. When it comes to alcohol, mm-hmm. if we cut out alcohol, will it bring those risk factors down or has the damage already be, been done if we quit 10 years ago, but, you know, had uh, drank uh, 10 years back? Well, you can always repair a lot of your body. Like, your, your body is really good at repairing itself, but some things never completely repair. So, uh, like, I'll give you an example. Like, when I was in my 20s, I used to play more sports, and I messed up my shoulder. Now I'm in my 40s, and my shoulder is messed up again. Like, it's not as bad as it could be, but, you know, I didn't protect it the way that I should have. And I think with smoking and with alcohol, it's it's a similar kind of thing. Like, if you stop or if you cut down your body can repair a lot of the damage that's been done, but it'll never get back to the point of, you know, having not been exposed to toxins. So on the flip side, how quickly can a cancer grow if we are drinking alcohol fairly regularly? Well, that's the thing. It's hard to put timelines on these things because that's not really how the studies work, right? It's not like there's a randomized group where one group is drinking and one group isn't, and then we start to time it out. It's more just kind of population level that people who are drinking get more cancers. And from a, from a biology point of view, it does typically take decades for this to happen. So, you know, if you're drinking now, you're not going to get a cancer next month. But, you know, for people who are younger, like in their 20s or 30s and, you know, out, uh, out at a bar or whatever on the weekend, like, honestly, I don't care if you drink. Like, I'm not telling you to never drink. Mm-hmm. That's not my messaging. But it's just, you know, be aware that, each drink you have actually does carry a little bit of a threat to you. So maybe tone it down a little bit, right? Um, and, and so, you know, as you get older and you're like me and you're, you're in your 40s, like I'm not that old, but, you know, I'm starting to feel the effects of the stuff that I did in my 20s. Yeah. So it, it catches up to you, right? And you don't have to be that old to have been drinking in your 20s and now you've got a cancer in your 40s. And, I, and we see it all the time. You know, we've had these uh, alcohol uh, consumption guidelines, and I think it's something like, uh, I don't have the exact stats in front of me, like 10 drinks a week for women, no more than 15 drinks a week for men. These guidelines maybe shift and change over the years or decades. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are with a guideline like that. Is is there no, quote-unquote, safe amount then? 
Well, it's it's kind of a linear a linear risk specifically with cancer, but I think a lot of the guidelines are factored into other things like mental health and kind of overall societal kind of expectations, honestly. Um, so I'll give you the example from 2020 down in the States. They had like a giant scientific review for their uh, same thing, low risk alcohol guidelines. And they tried to make it in the scientific panel that their recommendation was one drink a day for women and one drink a day for men. But when the guidelines were actually published, it was still, I think it was one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men. And even though the science was saying, you know, the risk to men and women is still almost equivalent in terms of the damage it can do, there's just this need out there. I don't know whether it's societal or industry or whatever, like that's beyond me, honestly. But people just really like alcohol. And, you know, if you want to have a drink here or there, it's fine. But you know, I'm not out there having ice cream every day and having three on the weekend. Like, yeah. that would really be bad for me. And, you know, you know, doctor, we have a texter jokingly saying you're being a buzzkill. But, you know, truthfully, what you do, you you see cancers every day at your office. That's what you do for a living. So do you really believe that putting warning labels on an alcohol bottle might actually help with this issue? Well, that's the thing is there was a study that was attempted, I guess I would say, where putting a warning label did actually decrease the amount of consumption, not to zero. And once again, I'm not saying zero. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying less. Uh, And yeah, I mean, the warning labels did decrease consumption. Um, So I I think, you know, by scale, when you think about like the graphic warning labels on cigarettes, the threat from cigarettes is much bigger, right, in terms of heart disease and stroke and lung disease and cancer. Like it's smoking is really bad. You shouldn't smoke. Whereas with with alcohol, yeah, I mean, if you want to have a drink or two here or there, like, that's fine. Just be aware of what it's doing to you. And don't think that, you know, drinking every day and having a few on the weekends and staying within that 10 drinks a week is safe because it's not, right? It still carries some risk. Very interesting Mm -hmm. topic, and I think that, yeah, it uh, could in some way, shape, or form affect us all, whether we're social drinkers or enjoy you know, having a wine, a glass of wine on a regular basis. So we appreciate your time, Dr. Iqbal. Well, thank you very much. That's Dr. Fawad Iqbal, a radiation oncologist at the Durham Regional Cancer Care Center. Once a month, we join the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science, Dr. Axel Morenschlager, to talk about all of the wild and crazy animals and wonderful conservation work that that organization is doing. And he joins us now. Hi, Dr. Axel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Pleasure to chat with you once again. And I know this week is an interesting one. We're looking at the work that is being done to save an extinct species of fish. Who knew that there was a tequila fish? What a great name. Yeah, and who knew that spas and tequila can be excellent together? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So, yeah, I'd like to introduce you to Zoo Geneticus tequila, otherwise known as a tequila split fin fish. Now, it didn't get its name because it goes well with tequila, just to make this clear, right? Because it's an uh, endangered species. It got its name because it's actually in a place at, at the foot of the Tequila Volcano in central western Mexico. And this tiny little fish uh, only gets to be about seven centimeters long. They're kind of grayish, and the females um, flaunt a transparent uh, tail. And the males um, are a bit smaller than the females, but they compensate for that by having these golden 
uh, tail fins and other little golden bits on their fins, which they use to look as sexy as possible as they sort of jut around the water trying to, you know, display incredible courtship dances. Now, one of the things about fish is, you know, they lay eggs, right? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, right, like like caviar, right? Eggs of sturgeon or salmon roe that you see in sushi and such. So these little tiny fish actually have live young, uh-huh. and they have like 29 of them at a time. So you can imagine how tiny, tiny those little babies are. And uh, But, you know, they just live in some some rivers and ponds in Mexico, and there they're subject to all kinds of sort of bad things like habitat destruction, and also competition from species that are introduced. Like, you know, when people just sort of release, you know, fish into wherever just because, you know, they came out of their aquarium or something. Yes. So one of the one of the most worrying things for these beautiful little fish are evil guppies. Oh. Guppies that um, have started to take over the place where they, you know, that they call home. And so what's happened is that... Um, Last week, somebody reached out to me from Switzerland because we spearhead an international task force for species that are extinct in the wild, which means they're completely gone from the wild. They only exist under human care. And we produced a book in 2018 that already had an article talking about this, but things have escalated since then. And so basically, people uh, reached out for us to take a stand with the media. And so what you're guessing here or getting is that um, this species actually became extinct in the wild for over 10 years, right? This wonderful little tequila, beautiful, interesting fish became extinct in the wild. But luckily, in 1998, a British aquarist actually brought some of these little fishies um, back to Britain and brought them to the Chester Zoo. If that hadn't happened, this species would be extinct now. So Chester Zoo started to breed them and then started to actually give back the fish back to Mexico where they developed a breeding facility called the Fish Ark. Okay? And so in, uh, by tw- 2012, they had 80 fish in little ponds in Mexico. But then from just, and you know, they came from just four pairs of fishes oh, that wow. were last. And they were maintained in zoos, actually, some of these were in the early 80s as well, so maintained for over 30 years, okay? And so basically they addressed the issues that were in the wild and then led to releases in 2016. Now, what's so cool about this is that the researchers worked closely with local communities and they did the first releases of the tequila fish back to the wild on the Day of the Dead, November 2nd, 2016. Brilliant. And the reason why they did that is because, um, you, know, the, it, you know, it's a very important spiritual day in Mexico. And the belief is that on that day, loved ones that have departed to the afterlife actually return to spend the night with the relatives who are still alive, right? And so in the same way, they were bringing back this extinct in the wild species and letting the local communities take, you know, charge of releasing them and, and treasuring them. So... Um, so they release 80, and then after uh, a couple months, over half of them are gone, so that's looking bad. Mm-hmm. But after six months, there's over 100, and then they see that most of them are pregnant. And then um, they do more releases, and they can even release 1,500. And now there are tens of thousands of these uh, wonderful fish back in their habitat. You know, a fish that was so close to extinction. 
Wow. Now, and let me get back to the spa. We've got to leave it there for time, Dr. Okay. If I can just say, sure, yeah. these, the, the, they're back in a place that's a natural spring, that's a spa, that actually you can go snorkeling. Oh. So you can return cool. extinct the wild species that are so close to extinction and bring them back if we just try really hard. That's so brilliant. I thank you for supporting wildlife conservation. Yeah to help tell us the story. In, incredible. We appreciate your time, and it's nice to hear a story about tequila that doesn't <laughs> end with a headache, but with happy news. Appreciate exactly. it. Exactly. Thank you so much. That is uh, Dr. Axel Morenschlager, the Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. Of course, more online at calgaryzoo.com or wilderinstitute.org. Well, a lot of us are working from home and spending more time than ever before at home. If you're looking to make improvements at your home or even the home office, the Calgary Renovation Show will help you spark your inner interior designer. This morning, we're joined by Christina Dennis, the DIY mommy, blogger, and DIY expert. Good morning to you, Christina. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for spending some time with us. And we have spent a lot of time at home right now. And, and I think we maybe got a little sick of looking at those same old four walls. So I, I know it's only a, a, a few minutes of the segment. We could spend hours because I think, yeah, I think a lot of people want ideas that won't break the bank and, and won't be back-breaking either. Are there simple ways we can make wholesale changes or changes we'll notice? Yeah, I love the power of paint. I always have. So even painting little pieces of furniture makes a huge difference, painting an accent wall, and even something as simple as switching out hardware on your kitchen cabinet or any cabinets in your home is going to make a huge impact on a budget, and it's really, really easy so, Christina, you have a booth, I'm assuming, at the the show this weekend, right? I'm going to actually be speaking, speaking on the main stage. Will yeah. you be taking questions, too, then? Because that's always something that I love most at the uh, the Calgary Renovation Show, is that, you you know, you, you can take pictures sometimes, and you can ask questions and, and get specific help for whatever your issue is, many of them, usually in some of our homes, and, and get that, <laughs> yeah. that help right on the spot, right? Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to take questions after. I love answering questions, and I know that there's going to be lots of experts there. So it's a great place to go if you have really specific questions about your home and renovating it right now. Give us an idea about this year's Calgary renovation show. I know that we're thirsty to get out there and and to do things more so in person. So what's this edition going to look like? Yeah, so it's going to be probably not going to be huge crowds there. So it is a really great opportunity to connect one-on-one with a ton of experts that are going to be there in all sorts of different uh, varieties of industries related to renovation. I'm going to be on the main stage chatting about uh, vacation rental renovations and maybe inspiring people to look for a second property and look into doing a short-term rental. I love it. I'm just on the website right now, calgaryrenovationshow.com. Whether it's indoors or out, pools, spas and saunas, financial and mortgage information, as you're talking about, even, you know, garages, there's a little bit of everything there and always is. It's just fun to wander around and just kind of browse and, and get that uh, that creative juice sparked, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be tons of inspiration there. I can't wait to go. Do you need, you know, in, in 2022, Christina, we've got so many great resources online, like Instagram, for example. You yeah. can follow your favorites. You used to be up to try to catch their TV show, so to speak. Do you need to hire, for example, an interior designer if you want your things uh, to, to be matching or some sense <laughs> of style? Or can you do something like this on your own? I am a huge proponent of DIYing. So I think that uh, there's a few tips and tricks that you can find online. I have a lot of just really easy decor design tips and tricks right on my, my YouTube channel, the DIY Mommy, and 
we have all these resources right at our fingertips. So I think you can do a lot of these things yourself and actually make your home look really good just DIYing it. Okay, we can go online again, calgaryrenovationshow.com. You can save $2 and buy your tickets right there online. Also find out all the different vendors when folks like you will be speaking on the main stages. It's a great resource and it's going to be a fantastic show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a fun show this weekend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Christina Dennis is the DIY mommy, a blogger, and a DIY expert. Again, calgaryrenovationshow.com. All the info is there. You do need to be vaxxed or show a PCR test. So, yeah. uh, you know, go there for all the information that you need before you head down. Well, and I think it's awesome in that, you know, what you said about, we hear so much about paint. And yeah, you anybody can make paint look good. It just takes the time. Mm-hmm. The pros, they can do a zip zop wop and it's done. Okay, it might look a little bit better. But if you take your time and you're not in a rush, you can make paint look good. I like what you said about changing the hardware because when my daughter was born, I bought a simple dresser. This is going back 16 years. And it took the knobs. And if you go to like the Home Depots and the Lowe's and such, you can get like flowery and bumblebee knobs. And Easy that, fix, right? To change something dramatically. Extra. Yeah. yeah, and it, it just changed the whole look. So the little things can make a huge difference. So Christina's on to something. Most of us don't get ideas like that. We just It's not you know natural to us. So to be able to go to a show and pick up ideas from others, it's fantastic. It is the Calgary Renovation Show. Runs January 14th through the 16th down at the BMO Center. Go online, get a couple of bucks off your tickets and go have some fun. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.